on the identity of the church. Um, so if you weren't here, I'm actually going to be picking up where he left off. Um, and basically, where I'm actually going to pick up with what he left off on is, um, it was actually amazing. He was actually tying together, oh, thank you so much. Um, let me log in here. He was tying together uh, in the New Testament where uh, Jesus was saying, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that in the Greek that word ekklesia, the understanding of what ekklesia means, but then he was also talking about in the Old Testament uh, when Moses was uh, talking with the Lord and the Lord was saying that he would gather together his people. The gathering together, the sacred assembly of the people um, is the same root word and understanding in the Hebrew. Um, and it's that understanding that we are the church, the corporate gathering and the expression as we gather together to worship him. And so I'm going to actually pick up on the understanding and the identity of the church. And this might be a little bit different. If you're new to the city and so Hilltop is not your home, um, this might be a, a new context and a new reality for you. Um, if you've been around for any amount of time, some of this will be very familiar, but I'm just actually going to pull in some different scripture verses than we typically do when we're talking about the identity of the church. Um, how many of you guys are familiar in the New Testament, Jesus declared in the temple, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He, and what we're going to do today is we're actually going to go through, I'm going to give you some understanding in the Old Testament as far as how it was a type and a shadow of what would come in the New Testament, but ultimately the New Testament reality of what the church is called to be and how we are called to function. Hey, we're a church filled with young adults. And if I know one thing about all the young adults that love Jesus, they're always grappling with things like, what is the true identity of the church? What's the church supposed to look like? Guess what? You don't have to come up with a new idea. You can find it in the book of Acts. The, the book of Acts is the blueprint, the model, the understanding of what the church is called to be. So there really isn't a lot of mystery to it. So you don't have to like try to wrestle through what, how am I going to build my ministry or how am I to, if you can't find the model in the book of Acts, you're not doing what Jesus came to establish in the earth. You're not a representation of what he birthed in the earth in the New Testament. And so you want to find biblical precedents for what you're doing. And if you cannot find biblical precedents for your preferences, for your opinions, <laughs> for your ways that you desire for the church or ministry and those things to look like, we need to adapt them to the biblical model of what God Christ has called us to be. And so that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to give you a super, I know everybody that is a part of our church is like, Bethany does nothing fast. <laughs> When Bethany says she's going to do something fast, I'm on point one for an hour. But I'm not going to do that, actually. <laughs> I'm going to give you an overview today. I'm not going to go into great detail. Um, but what I want you to do is I want you to turn to 2 Peter. <clears throat> and this is kind of a, a very different passage of Scripture when you're going to talk about a house of prayer or when you're going to talk about the biblical understanding of the church, is it, it's called to be a house of prayer. But I actually really want to start here, and then we're going to go to the Old Testament and wrap up in the book of Acts. Um, but the reason I want to start here is if you've turned to Second Peter, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 2, I'm going to read this, and we're going to highlight two passages, passages of Scripture here. Um, <clears throat> 
Verse 1, therefore lay aside all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious... You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Just pause there before we go into any further. You are a part of the house that is being built and you are just a stone. You're not the entirety of the house. You ain't the whole package. You are part of it. If you want to understand the need for the corporate reality that we are a part of a greater body, that we are living stones being fashioned and fit together for the building of the house, which is his dwelling place. Guess what? He may dwell in you individually, but guess what? You are not the total package. There is a place and a reality and a dimension of God that we experience in the corporate reality that you will never know in isolation, that you will never know as a single stone, but it's only as we're fitted together. It's only as we're joined together. It's only in the coming together that we are the expression of what he desires and intends. So verse 5, you also as living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Here we go. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Then I'm going to jump to verse 9 and you're going to hear the same language here as far as priesthood. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If you're wondering what your calling here is this morning, if you're wrestling with what's my gift, what's my call, what's my identity, can I just say you are called to be a royal priesthood. What does that mean? It means that first and foremost, your ministry is to God. You minister before him. And we're going to actually look in the Old Testament as far as the model and the understanding of the priesthood. But do you see? It says he that called you out of darkness into the marvelous light that you might proclaim the praises of him that called you. Your life is for the declaration of his praise. Your life is for the displaying of his glory and his honor. The question we have to continually ask ourselves, does my life glorify the man Christ Jesus? Does my life glorify the man Christ Jesus? What does that mean? Does your speech glorify him? Do your attitudes glorify him? Does the priorities of your time glorify him? Does the priorities of your finances glorify him? Do your relationships glorify him? Do your ambitions glorify him? That all of our life might declare his praises, declare the worth of Jesus Christ. So here in 1 Peter, you can find your calling and your identity right here. It's all summed up right there. But what I want to do is this language of a, a royal priesthood is something that's largely unfamiliar and we're really not acquainted with it. We, we, most of us in this room, if you think of the priesthood, you think of the Catholic Church. You're kind of like, eh, not Catholic. I don't know how I fit in that category. But you want to know something? It's actually something that you can find a predominant theme in the New Testament. Revelations 1, 5 through 6. 
and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the firstborn begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of this earth, unto him that loves us and has washed us from our sins with his own blood. And he has made us a kingdom of priests unto our God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Romans 5.10, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, and every people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, here, there's this understanding where in the New Testament, we obviously do not operate according to having a priest that has to advocate for us. But let's just give you a, a little snapshot of the Old Testament here. In the Old Testament, we had the Levitical priesthood. Most of you guys would understand that, like under Moses, that Moses operated really as a priest and is according, according to his lineage. When you look in the Old Testament, you find the whole entire structure of their worship was surrounding them having a priest that would make sacrifices on behalf of them. That they needed an atonement for their sins. And so there was this one guy that was set apart and the understanding of priesthood is to be set apart and consecrated to minister to God. And the amazing thing is in the New Testament, you have been called a priest before him. That means that you have been called to be set apart, consecrated to minister to God. That you no longer need a mediator. But not only do you no longer need a mediator, but you are called first and foremost to minister before him. How do we minister before him? What are our sacrifices? It's the sacrifice of worship. Your calling is one of worship. Your calling is one of ministering to the Lord. Can I tell you something? We will never see the corporate reality of what the church is called to be unless we as individuals get a hold of. It is not a Sunday morning reality. It is not the pastor. It is not the evangelist. It is not the prophet. It is not these offices that we want to exalt. It is you as a royal priesthood taking your place. Taking your high calling. That is a high calling. I don't care if you're called to be a janitor here in this place, and I don't care if you're coming up with some of the greatest technology at MIT. The highest calling that each and every one of us receive is to be a priest before God. And can I say this to you this morning? If you are not fulfilling that high calling, you are not fulfilling your calling in the earth. You can seek to do a calling of works and ministry and outward displays before man. But first and foremost, your calling is to minister before God. I have a word for you here this morning. For those of you that some of your marriages are strained. For some of you that life is difficult and you feel like you're kind of on this treadmill of, of, of difficulty and hardship and feeling unfulfilled. You're kind of wandering around school. You started this new semester kind of wondering, what am I here for? Why am I doing this? Why did I sign up for this? What is this all unto? Can I say the answer and the sum total of the wrestling of your heart is that you were created to minister before God. And if you will stand in that place as a priest before him, you will find fulfillment in every other aspect of your life. 
if you are not standing in that place before him, you will find discontentment in every other area, regardless of your social class, your financial class, your political class, or, or, or your intelligence. Because this is our identity and what we've been called to. To stand as royal priests before God. <clears throat> Number one, you're called to draw near to God as your spiritual sacrifice before him. You have immediate access to God. Can I ask you a question? If Jesus Christ has made a way for us, are we accessing all that he has made available to us? We are so bored and disconnected from the heavenly reality, from the spiritual reality of what it is to live in fellowship and communion with God. The priests brought the, brought the sacrifices into the tabernacle in the Old Testament, but now the tabernacle is replaced by the Christian church, and the atoning altar is replaced by Jesus Christ in his shed blood. Um, for sake of time, we, we don't have time today, but I, I would encourage each and every one of you to read through Hebrews 9 and 10 this week. Hebrews 9 and 10 is, it actually, that's what it talks about. It talks about in the Old Testament that the tabernacle and the priesthood was just a type and a shadow of what was to come. That Jesus is the great high priest. And so therefore, he is the one that makes atonement for our sins. But because of the great high priest, he makes a way for us to come into the holy of holies. That we would be a royal priesthood before him. You should read through and meditate Hebrews 9 and 10. It will change your perspective. It will launch you into a place of awe and wonder. But, and for time's sake as well, if you look through the Old Testament, what you're going to find is basically what had happened was is from the Levitical order in the Leviticus 6, they were charged that there would be a priest that would tend to the fire in the altar. And the charge in Leviticus 6 was that the fire on the altar might never go out. It was symbolic of the presence of God, the tending to the presence of God. Can I just say, regardless of the corporate reality, as much as that's important, are you tending to the presence of God in your life? Are you cultivating the presence of God in your life? If you were to apply is, uh, Leviticus 6, is the fire on the altar of your heart? It is, it, is it blazing and are you feeding it daily? How, do you guys, how many of you guys know fire has to be fed? Fire has to be fed fuel so that it will continue to be sustained. How are we sustaining the fire of God in our life? Or do we neglect it for long seasons? The fire on the altar was not to go out. That was their mandate. That was their call as priests. And that is our call as priests. Just to give you guys a little overview, you guys are, are familiar that it was King David that had a vision for the establishing of the Tabernacle of David, which is where all the singers, all the musicians, it was the first reality of night and day worship, meaning it was no longer just one priest that was ministering and tending to the fire. Now it became hundreds of thousands, singers and musicians, and this great parade of worship and extravagant worship to, to the Lord. But you want to know what's amazing is you can study the tabernacle of David in the Old Testament, but do you know that in Israel's history, there were six subsequent times that the tabernacle and tabernacle worship, night and day worship and prayer, was reinstituted? Um, for sake of time, uh, <clears throat> 
you can go throughout this week and kind of study this out. But Solomon, it was established in 1010 BC. Joash, 853 BC. Hezekiah, 726 BC. Josiah, 635 BC. Zerubbabel, 538 BC. And Nehemiah, 446 BC. Um, but that's, this is what's amazing is I can remember years ago I was a part of a, a New England solemn assembly and we were going to gather all of New England together and kind of consecrate a fast before the Lord. And I can remember sitting there and thinking like, I think we've done this a lot. <laughs> like, I think we do these things and then we all kind of go back to business as usual. So what happened for me is I remember thinking, I know it's biblical to call a sacred assembly. I know it's biblical to have a day of prayer and fasting and call us back to the Lord. So what happened was, is I decided to go through every single time in the Old Testament that a king would do that, would call his people to a, a sacred assembly and to fast and pray. And do you know what I realized? They didn't just do it for one day. They reinstituted day and night worship and prayer. They were saying, we're returning to you, but not just for one day. We are going to reprioritize our life around the place of worship. And that's what we have to do as a people. We have to prioritize our life around the place of cultivating the presence of God. We have to prioritize our time and our, our fascinations, our desires, our hobbies, our, our hobbies in subjection to the priority of cultivating the presence of God in our life. But this is what you find in the Old Testament. So night and day worship and prayer is reinstituted six times. So it's not a one time in history shot. It's something that it was the wisdom of God on how Israel would function and how government. Do you know if you study these six times, all of a sudden there would be economic prosperity. There would be military strength. It's that indescribable place of favor with God. Because they were in right relationship with God. This doesn't come down to a system and a formula. It comes down to being in right relationship with God. And when we are in right relationship with God, we want to spend time with him. Can I say this morning, if you have no desire to spend time in the presence of God, it's an indication that something is very wrong in your relationship. It's not a healthy relationship. I would encourage you this morning, go back to figuring out, are there places where I've been offended with God in his ways, that I've been disappointed, that I'm in shame, and so I'm withdrawing. Identify why is it you're distancing yourself from the presence of God. And then we find in the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and declares, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. He's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 56. Um, <clears throat> And then, you know what I'm going to do? What time is it? Oh, I have 10 minutes. I know. Hmm? So we're going to jump. So for you guys that, so that's the Old Testament as far as the priesthood that would function, the tabernacle. In the New Testament, we still functioned with priests when, when Jesus um, was up until his 30s, still functioned with priests. But you know what's amazing is most people don't recognize that the temple that was instituted, and it was kind of the center of what was taking place in, in Jewish culture and in Israel, that they, they had these watches of prayer. 
They, they understood the discipline of prayer, that, prayer, that the temple was someplace that you went and you read through the scriptures, that you prayed through the scriptures. How many of you guys know that that's actually where Jesus was found even as a child? He was there amongst the theologians and scholars. So there's Jesus. But you know what's amazing is oftentimes if you want to talk about the identity of house of prayer where Jesus said, my house shall be called the house of prayer, do you realize that the birthing of the New Testament church in Acts, we could do this for weeks and go through it. It's It's fascinating. The New Testament church in Acts, oftentimes we look at the signs, the wonders, and the miracles that followed the book of Acts, right? Everyone's like, we've never seen an outpouring like they've seen in the book of Acts. Can I say something to you? There is something very, very specific, but also very, very simple that you find in the book of Acts. Number one, they were a praying people. They gathered together daily for prayer. I get you. Most of you in this room are like, well, in American culture, there's no the heck way. No, I get you. I totally get you in the fact that I'm a mom, I homeschool, I'm a busy little person. And so it's not like I'm gathering together every single day in Cambridge. Can I tell you something, though? I value that place of prayer. So I get up on 4 th- at 4.30 on Tuesdays to drive my little booty to Cambridge and pray with my sister Miriam. <laughs> So there's places where you say, you know what, maybe I can't be there every single day of the week, but I value the corporate expression of prayer. I'm going to say something to you. If you're here this morning and you're kind of like, I pray, I just don't do it in groups. Can I just say something to you? If you are a praying person, you enjoy being with other people to pray. When you're experiencing the presence of God, you enjoy being with other people because there's a place where you pray and my spirit is fed and alive and strengthened and envisioned. Or you pray something that I've never seen in scripture before. Or I pray and then I hear you pray and it builds in such a way that there is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith is increased. Your expectation is increased. Can I say this to you? We are a royal priesthood. Do you understand that that also brings you a responsibility that you should be ministering to others? So book of Acts. I'm going to fly you. I normally take four sessions to do Book of Acts. I'm going to fly you through Book of Acts in 10 minutes. Uh, (laughs) Here you go. What I want you to ultimately see is the pattern of prayer that's taking place in the Book of Acts. First and foremost, we all know that Jesus gave them the charge. He said, go to the upper room and tarry there. He said, wait there for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Most of us are walking around wondering why we don't have the Holy Spirit because you're not positioning yourself in the place of prayer. You just simply have to position yourself. There is something of encountering God that comes down to the place of positioning yourself before him. Of saying, I am becoming a landing strip for you to come. Most of us are too distracted with too many other things that even if the Holy Spirit was trying to speak to you, you wouldn't hear it because you got your Xbox, TV, iPad, all your electronics blasting all your senses. If we're disconnected from the Holy Spirit, maybe we need to shut it down for a little bit to reconnect. So Jesus tells them, go to the upper room and tarry there. I love, here, hear me. I was raised charismatic. The girls that were at my mom's church this weekend know it. (laughs) They had it going on, shofars and fire tunnels. (laughs) I was like, yeah. I was raised charismatic. I'm not opposed to the charismatic. But you want to know the biggest disservice that has happened in the charismatic church? 
that somehow we're waiting for a feeling to prompt us. We're waiting for some kind of an unction to feel inspired to pray and fast. We somehow despise the place of discipline, that somehow it is religious. No, can I say to you, it is not religious that you brush your teeth. It's wisdom that you brush your teeth so your teeth don't rot. You're such a legalist. You brush your teeth every day. Even when you don't feel like it. Well, if my heart's not in it, I'm not brushing. stupidity that doesn't work in any other part of your life why do you think that works with spiritual disciplines I'm just not inspired it's because you're dead try sitting your butt in the seat in the house of prayer and saying I won't move until my heart is moved by your presence Try positioning yourself for the presence of God to encounter you. Some, most of us, our biggest issues, is we just need to change our posture. You need a new posture. You don't need a new solution. You don't need a new relationship. You don't need a new place, a new house, a new car, a new church. You need a new heart posture is what you need. Position yourself before him. So they positioned themselves. Can I just say, I'm sure they did not feel like going to the upper room. They just saw the Messiah crucified. They were living in a hostile city. They were living in a city of persecution where they were hated and they were despised. All of their hopes and expectations had just been destroyed. I don't feel like praying. I'm wrestling through disappointment. Really? They went and positioned themselves there and the Holy Spirit encountered them in a life-altering, world-altering, history-altering way. Greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But you want to know, it's not that outpouring that is so amazing about the book of Acts. Can I tell you what's so amazing about the book of Acts? After the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, so they experienced the outpouring, Acts chapter 2, 48. So they continued daily in one accord in the temple. Do you understand that? They continued daily in the place of prayer. They experienced an outpouring, and then they continued to cultivate the presence of God. They didn't think that they had arrived someplace or achieved something. They didn't go into a, a posture of lax and ease. They stayed in a posture of being hungry and desperate and cultivating the presence of God. But you can watch this throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3, 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. There, there they are. They're going to the hour of prayer. They're doing the discipline of prayer in that place. Then we find in... Um, <clears throat> Acts 3.12, this is Peter's second sermon. And Acts chapter 4, after the, the second sermon, we find the first persecution. Can I ask you a question? Do you know what happens after the first persecution? Right after the first persecution, we find immediately they went to a prayer meeting. This is the most famous apostolic prayer. Look upon their threats that you might grant to your servants power and that they would do great exploits. 
points that the word of the Lord would run, run swiftly and be glorified. Guess what? In the place of persecution, they lifted their voice in prayer. That is so countercultural to the way that we function as people. We have no theology, no understanding of hardship, persecution, difficulty. In our day and age, if we go into a place and our outreach doesn't work, our event doesn't work, we all introspect and self-anticide. Why don't I have the favor of God? Why is my ministry not growing? Has God forsaken me? It's not supposed to be this way. You're only supposed to allow great things and great exploits through my life. They were found lifting their voice in the place of prayer. <clears throat> so then we find actually, uh, chapter 5 is where great miracles, signs, and wonders. This is where Peter's shadow has healed people. All the peoples were healed. Then we find uh, the next... <laughs> persecution and imprisonment. We find the angel of the Lord that opened the door supernaturally. We find them being beaten and silenced and charged that they should not open up their mouths. But they went departing rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer name, shame for his namesake. And then we find in, cha uh, this, we're still in chapter 5. Verse 42, daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching, preaching, and gathering together in prayer. They refused to stop. Then we find Peter's imprisonment. And how many of you guys know, this is in uh, Acts chapter 12, Peter's imprisoned. You guys know this story. He's in prison, and they're all gathered together at a house praying for his release. They're praying, you want to talk about, you want to define contending intercession? <laughs> They're all praying for Peter's release. Peter's released from prison. It's like a whole supernatural, the prison gates open, you know, the whole thing. Like, it's all happening supernaturally. He goes to the house where they're praying. He knocks on the door. The girl that comes to the door looks out, and she thinks that she's seen like a ghost. She doesn't even open the door to Peter. They're continuing to pray. The prayer meeting continues. Can I just tell you, we have no mentality for that kind of a prayer meeting. Meaning the dude is in prison. In our context, in our Western mindset, we'll do a 15-minute prayer meeting and then we're, then we're all going to go out to Taco Bell or wherever the heck you people eat now. I don't know where people eat. <laughs> you know, nothing is going to interfere with our appetites for food, our appetites for pleasure. Nothing is going to inconvenience us. We'll pray on the perimeter. We'll pray with the after hours, the excess of hours. But how about they put themselves in that place of prayer and they did not move themselves from that place of prayer until Peter was released from prison. We need some people that can learn how to pray like that. Can I tell you here today, I don't care what your vocation is, what you do for a job. I don't care if you're married or single. Guess what? We can all learn how to pray like that. That is the highest calling that there is in this life is to learn how to engage in the place of prayer in such a way. That is the invitation that we have been given. And can I say something? If you're disgruntled with the American church, if you're disgruntled with the lack of power, the lack of authenticity, of why doesn't it look like, can I say to you, maybe be one of those that goes back to the model of they prayed always and they never lost heart. 
Can I just say to you this morning, every single teaching that Jesus did, every single parable, we could go all through them today. Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 18, Luke, uh, Matthew 18. Every single time that Jesus taught on prayer, it was always the understanding of persistence, of locking on and not turning aside, but continuing in that place and never losing heart. Why did he equip his people in such a way? Because he understood carnal mentality, our carnal appetites, our lowly thinking, our fleshly way of doing life. It opposes and resists and fights and wars against a life of prayer. Can I tell you the most countercultural thing you can do in your life is develop a life of prayer. Now hear me this morning, there's three of us in this, there's three groups of people in this place, and I do not care for you to identify yourself. There's three groups of people in this place. There's those of us that have never been rightly taught the call to the place of prayer, the invitation to the place of prayer, and we've never clearly seen or perceived it. I can tell you honestly, we get emails and letters all the time from college students Everybody said when I came to Boston, it would be like the darkest season of my life spiritually. I found the house of prayer, and I developed a life of prayer. Growing up in the church, I thought you just prayed for your meal. People found what it was to live a lifestyle of prayer. That's an invitation. That's one of the reasons that we're here, is to invite people into that. So you could be here this morning, and you just fully have never understood, like, oh, he calls me a royal priesthood. That's my high calling is to priest before him, to minister before him, to cultivate the presence of God, to keep the fire on the altar of my heart burning. That's your calling. That might be your first time hearing it. Then we have group number two here this morning that is so familiar with this language. You've been raised in it. You could write it. You could teach it. You almost know what I'm going to say before I say it. But yet you do not wrestle to live the reality of this message in your life. You're perfectly fine with intellectual assent to it. You're perfectly fine with biblical understanding of it. But you live a life divorced from the reality of it. No condemnation. I, what I'm here to say is there's a third group of people. Because this is kind of your only other option. There's a third group of people that they know this reality. They're aware of this reality. And guess what? It does not come naturally. It does not come easily. They continually have to readjust and realign and position themselves and fight through despair and refuse to settle. But they are hell-bent. And I say that in a way of they are so set upon cultivating a life of prayer, they will continually sign back up. Because can I say something to you? A life of prayer will not come naturally. It is something that we have to be vehemently committed to. And so this is what I want to do this morning. I don't care what group you're part of. But as Hilltop Church, if today we are saying, because this is why we're talking about the identity of the church. We're not here to do two hours with you on Sunday morning. Surprise! This is just kind of like a blip on a much larger scale of what we feel called to do. And that is ultimately that Jesus 
would receive the worship that he is worthy of. That Jesus would receive a continually song of worship, a continual cry of prayer from the city of Cambridge. Can I tell you that when he receives that, it's just like Mary of Bethany who broke the alabaster box. When she worshiped Jesus extravagantly, that fragrance filled the entire place. Can I tell you that when we worship Jesus the way that he is worthy to be worshiped, when Jesus is lifted high, the fragrance of Jesus will fill Cambridge. The fragrance of Jesus will fill Boston and New England and the nations of the earth. And so if you are here this morning, I ultimately, what I want to do is I want to pray over those, not up front, just stand to your feet. I want to pray over those that are saying, I am signing back up in my heart. I am signing back up to a life of prayer. I am signing back up, understanding that it does not come naturally and it does not come easily. But I want the commitment for all of my days is to be a priest before him. First and foremost, to priest before him. Father, we come before you this morning. And God, we acknowledge, Father, that there are many things in our lives, Lord, that we give our time and our attention. God, even we'll go so far to say that there's many things that we waste our time, our attention, our affections, our finances on. But God, we say, Lord, we want to be a people like Mary of Bethany, Lord, that we pour the entirety of our life. Lord, even as that was her inheritance, she had no security left once she poured that out before you. Lord, I ask, God, that everything in this life that we cling to, God, everything that we cling to for security and identity, God, we say, Lord, in this season, we want to pour it all out before you, Father. God, we truly want to, as a church, be, Lord, that royal priesthood, a chosen generation, God, that first and foremost, we would priest before you. We would minister before you, Father. Lord, this morning, as we stand upon our feet, God, we just realign our priorities, Lord, today. We are realign those things that are robbing us of time. God, we say we, we don't want to just give you the excess of our life. But God, we want to reprioritize our value system, our desires, and our ambitions and Lord, as a community of people, God, we say we will not allow the fire on the altar of our heart to go out. Lord, I ask, Lord, even today for those under the sound of my voice, God, that it would be a day, God, would you mark hearts with fire in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask, Lord, for the burning fire of the Holy Spirit. God, we say, Lord, we never want to live outside of the burning fire of the Holy Spirit. God, we want to live lives of continually cultivating the presence of God inwardly, Father. Lord, we ask, Lord, I ask for every person under the sound of my, my voice that has lived a life of outward focus of all the things externally, whether it be in business or in ministry of outward appearances. Lord, today, Lord, we say we realign our hearts, Lord, to the inward place of cultivating the presence of God. Lord, that you are our greatest treasure, that you are our greatest calling. Lord, you are our greatest ambition. Lord, we say, Father, we want to be a people of prayer.
Lord, we want to be a community of prayer. Lord, we want to value your presence above all else. And so, God, we say of Hilltop Church, Lord, that we let our identity first and foremost be as a house of prayer and as priests before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you guys have a 